2: Good evening and thank you for tuning in to Exposure. I'm Abby Newton and this is Impact 89FM. Yesterday it was Impact's 25th birthday. We are proud to have been with you all of these years and we look forward to many more. Now tonight, we will be talking about an MSU student turned entrepreneur. We will also be exploring biking in the winter and talking about how smartphones contribute to low energy levels. Later on Exposure, we have talk about healthcare, unusual devotions, the Broad Art Museum, and salsa dancing. Last, we chat about comics as an art form. Welcome back. I'm Abby Newton and you are listening to Exposure on Impact 89 FM. MSU student Victoria Boonehay took her education beyond the classroom when she and another student started their own business called Folio. FOLIO connects student artists with buyers.
3: Um, so my name is Victoria Buena, and I'm an advertising senior here at Michigan State.
2: And so you are a college student, about ready to graduate, but you already have your own startup. So right. tell us a
3: little bit about that. So the startup actually happened at Startup Weekend, which I would suggest everybody go to one. it's an incredible experience. You have 54 hours to start your own business. And how it pretty much works is people come with ideas. It has to be an idea. You can't already have a preformed business and they pitch their idea, and then you get to vote. So at this startup weekend, uh, people were pitching their ideas, and I didn't really see any that I wanted to work on. And my coworker, Ashley Brimley, she's an artist herself, and before she was talking a little bit about wanting to sell her artwork and just being sad that there's no place at Michigan State that she could do that. So then myself, her, and Caitlin McDonald just started brainstorming. Like, as other people were, like, wrapping things up, like, and we came up with Foley. And Ashley's a little bit on the shyer side, so I kind of tricked her. um, And I was like, if you pitch your idea, I'll pitch an idea. But uh, I didn't have an idea. I wanted to work on her idea. So she went and she pitched. And um, then she looked at me, and I was like, no, I'm working on this idea with you. So she got enough votes, and we spent 54 hours getting a rough draft of Folio. And we ended up winning the startup weekend. So we continued. We're still working on it and that's kind of how it happened. And then tell us about Folio itself. Uh, It's really unique, but I want you to kind of shed light on that. Yeah, so Folio is actually a social e-commerce platform for student artists to sell their work. So what we found is um, a lot of student artists were kind of intimidated with the whole selling process. They have all this great work, but they don't really know where to start with pricing or shipping or marketing. And they were really overwhelmed because they don't really have a formal education about it. So we kind of wanted to develop this community for student artists to feel comfortable and confident in their work and the whole selling process and really not discount themselves because on a lot of current marketplaces, uh, because there's so many pieces flooding the market, people discount their pieces. Mm -hmm. And we want want student artists to value their work because we think art is really valuable. Mm -hmm. How has the response
2: been from student artists when
3: this was introduced? So student artists, especially at Michigan State, because, you know, we are here, have been incredibly helpful to the whole process we're taking everything they say into consideration from the actual physical website to the teaching materials because ultimately it's it's tailored for them so we want to make it as perfect and as user-friendly for them as possible
2: wow and then how do you kind of build that outreach you know a student comes to you and says I have this artwork I want to sell so what's the next step for
4: you
3: So right now, we actually are accepting applications for the first 35 artists on our site, and if they are interested, which um, I would encourage any artist out there listening, if you know a friend, um, go to our website, folio.co, or they can email hello at folio.co, and kind of just tell us why you're interested, send us a picture of your portfolio or some of the pieces you'd want to sell, and we'd go from there. Are you looking for any art in particular? Yeah, so Folio is actually all art as long as it's as long as you're a student and it's handmade, we want you on our site. So everything from fashion pieces to ceramics to acrylic. So
2: if it's art, we want it. And what how has it been? You know, you're a college student again. How has it been trying to create this startup while you're in college taking the classes. I'm sure working some type of part-time job. Yeah, I mean, I'd be lying if I'd say it wasn't <laughs> stressful, but I'd say it's all
3: about perspective and passion. So if you wake up in the morning thinking, oh my gosh, I have so much to do today, then you know it's just going to be an intimidating day for you. Whereas if you look at on a positive look, I get to talk to this person today and I get to work on this and um, I think it, it's really motivating and uplifting. And for me, it's also because I'm doing it for other people mm-hmm. is what's really the pushing force for me. No that other people are depending on this product and so excited about getting it up it just makes the days go by really fast and it makes those few hours at night worth it Um, so I'd say definitely working on your schedule and making sure you do allow yourself some days off in between (laughs) because you don't want to get burned out especially if you're working on an idea that you're so passionate about Mm -hmm. but just really segmenting
2: your day and taking it hour by hour minute by minute even Mm -hmm, absolutely and have you you always been one who's passionate about art or has this passion kind of developed through this project?
3: So I've always really liked art and I myself like, you know, photography and I've painted, but I think Uh, folio has really helped me see another side of my passion Mm -hmm. that I'm not only passionate about the art but the artist which is why I think original artwork is so beautiful and amazing you know that sounds a little cheesy but when you get something mass produced like a poster or something you hang it up on your wall and you kind of discount it you're like yeah it's there it's decoration but when you have a piece that someone has put their heart and their time Mm in when you look at it you get a different feeling it's a completely different ambiance. and uh, working on an folio has really made me realize that the art is more than just the art itself. Mm-hmm. It's about the process, about the time, and about the artist.
2: Wow! And uh, now, you know, you have three months until graduation. So, yeah. what are your plans after those three months expire? So my plans are, you know, to continue working on Folio. We're
3: hoping to launch early spring and then get it expanding to other Michigan schools and nationwide. So we really want to make this um, art communities throughout the nation and have artists connect from Michigan to California Mm -hmm. to New York. We really want it to be not just a product or service, but a revolution, a movement towards, you know, valuing your work and, you know, valuing art. So going to keep working on Folio, getting the community side expanded, and adding features to the website. And then uh, one of my last questions is,
2: what other contributing factors played a role into you being able, able to be an entrepreneur in college?
3: So I think it's really just drive. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a person that believes that if you set a goal for yourself and you have enough drive, you can accomplish it. Whether it's having a startup, getting an internship, getting a job, whatever it is, just drive and not being afraid afraid to fail. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people have really amazing ideas. But then the fear of them possibly not working out prevents them. And I would say do it anyway, because you're always going to wonder, what if I did try? What if I, you know, went to talk to somebody else about it? So I would say take those risks while you're still in college, because a lot of people are going to be really supportive that you're a student. And I'd say fail quick and, Mm -hmm. you know fail time and time again but learn from it you know every time I failed or I've done something wrong I've just learned tremendously from it and I think that's what really shapes me as who I am is the successes but as well as the failures mm. because they've made me so much stronger and I, I would even say more driven um, I, I always joke that for me failure is almost a motivator because I don't want it to happen again mm. so I would say just follow your passion and no, don't be afraid to take
2: risks. And behind you, are there's almost like a herd of entrepreneurs on campus that some people might not know about through the Hatch, through Spartan Innovations. Would you like to touch on them? Yeah,
3: so the Hatch is an amazing place. And I would say, um, you know, just if you have an idea or if you're even interested in entrepreneurship, I would say reach out to the Hatch. Um, Paul Jakes, he's an incredible guy and will get you involved in the community. We have the Entrepreneurship Association that really helps mold students to feel comfortable with entrepreneurship because it is such sometimes an open and overwhelming field that people are a little confused. Like, so can I be an entrepreneur without having a company? And different people will tell you different things, but for me, an entrepreneur is someone who loves innovation. You don't necessarily need to have a company at this point to consider yourself an entrepreneur. So... The website is theideahatch.org, and we're actually going through some amazing expansions. So the space is getting bigger and better, and there's just so much buzz on Michigan State campus now about entrepreneurship, and that makes me so excited because I think people are finally starting to see entrepreneurship as something to be proud of Mm -hmm. and something to really consider as a career path.
2: Absolutely. Well, Victoria, thank you very much. Uh, We look forward to seeing how folio and also entrepreneurship in your life and a Michigan State grows. Thank you so much for having me.
5: You're listening to
0: Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week.
2: Tuesday nights from
6: 8 until midnight, The Impact's Progressive Torch and Twang Torch and Torch. brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on the Impact Rhyme You wouldn't send a text while using a chainsaw.
7: Check out
5: these pics of this huge tree fall.
6: You probably wouldn't text while scuba diving. And you definitely wouldn't send a text while making out. <laughs> You are so smoking hot. I
0: love
8: your elbows. Oh, wait, hold on a second. Huh? I need to send this. OMG, I'm like totally kissing him right now.
9: Dude, what the <laughs> So
5: why
10: would you send a text while driving? Well, that's different.
6: That's what about 6,000 people who died last year said. Oh. And now it's illegal in Michigan to read, type, or send any text from your phone while driving. It's a $100 fine for the first offense and 200 bucks after that. Check out Michigan House Bill 4394. Be a part of the solution and save a life. And seriously, put the phone away while you're making out.
0: Aw, come back, cuddle bunny. You need help. 88.9 The Impact. Now back to Impact exposure. Exposure.
2: I'm Abby Newton, and this is Impact Exposure. During the war in Cuba in 1898, Americans got their first taste of Latin music, which led to salsa dancing. Now, over 100 years later, salsa dancing is becoming popular in the Lansing area. Our reporter Santiago Montiel danced his way through this story.
11: When you think salsa, you think sexy, right? Loud music, bodies touching, lots of spinning, and active feet sweeping the dance floor. The dance moves seem intimidating to some people, but for fans of this style, the moves come naturally. The spins perfectly synchronize between both dancers. Contrary to what some may think, salsa dancing is not just popular in Latin America. It is known, practiced, and appreciated around the world. Even Lansing is starting to have its own salsa community, giving dancing addicts and adventurous beginners a chance to practice. One of these up-and-coming opportunities to salsa is Salsa Capital. It is held at the Art Alley Creative Corridor on the 2nd and 4th Fridays of each month. Michigan native Brian Gruchowski is the creator of Salsa Capital. He says the idea came to him a year ago when he was taking a leadership class. One of his assignments was to create something that did not exist in the community. So Gruchowski set out to create salsa events in Lansing, eventually finding a permanent home in the art gallery.
9: They have a lot of salsa dancers in Lansing, but we didn't really have a home for salsa dancing. Um, the problem is that most dancers don't drink a lot, so the bars that were hosting our venues would often kick us out after a while because they weren't making enough money off the alcohol.
11: Grichowski says that there's a large amount of cultural diversity of the attendees, MSU students, professionals from the Lansing area, beginners, and people from all over the world.
12: So we really just
9: decided to come together as a community and, you know, build a salsa dancing scene that's open to everyone, all different nationalities, because salsa is really worldwide now.
11: Grochowski extends his help to the MSU community by assisting the MSU Salsa Club. They have open dance for every Wednesday night on MSU's campus. Hannah Reed, co-president of the MSU Salsa Club, says that everyone who dances, including beginners, adds their own twist to salsa dancing.
3: All Americans and people that learn just from us, everyone kind of takes it and makes it their own. It's really nice uh, for social dancing because you have to learn how to dance with everyone's different style and how to adapt it to your own and you learn different things from different people. and It's just really fun and and you're always learning new things.
11: Chelsea Woods, a salsa addict, says it is difficult to find places in Michigan, and especially in the Lansing area to practice. She says Detroit, Ann Arbor, and Grand Rapids are better cities to find places to dance.
0: In Lansing, it's there's basically nothing. So you have to travel, kind of, if you, you want to find a place.
11: Woods says salsa is something that anyone from any cultural background can enjoy.
0: I think it's for everyone. It, uh, if you like dancing, like for... Some people don't like um, to go to salsa clubs, like... Because they don't know, the, the music is all in Spanish, and you know, it can be a little frustrating not to understand it. For me, it wasn't an issue because I started listening to salsa to help myself learn Spanish.
11: Salsa gives young and old, Americans, and people from all over the world a chance to share this culture of dance. And the opportunity to do so is growing in our Lansing area. For Impact News, I'm Santiago Montiel.
2: As we take a break from salsa dancing, I thought we could explore biking. More specifically, biking in the winter. We have four seasons in Michigan. Winter being the most notorious. It is bitterly cold. There is snow everywhere, and the windshield often keeps us below freezing temperatures. But some cyclists at Michigan State don't seem to let that bother them.
6: Well, there's there's a surprising number of cyclists that do continue to ride right through the winter, and we. We've been supporting them this winter, a number of them. That
2: was Tim Potter. He helped start the MSU Bike Center in 2006 and has managed it ever since. He's just one of the people that continue to bike during the winter in Michigan. Every day, he parks his car in South Campus and rides to the bike shop, located on the north end of Farm Lane.
6: I personally park my car in South Campus where it's free to park. So I- that forces me to ride my bike that mile or so. Um, So I get a little taste of it every day just to see kind of what our customers are encountering. And so it certainly has more uh, challenges than riding in nice weather. But, you know, if you have the the fighting spirit or the, uh, you know, just the the willingness to try different things, and um, it's certainly not out of the question to keep riding through the winter even on the worst days.
2: MSU junior Ryan Erksleben also accepts the challenge.
7: If you are really passionate about cycling you don't mind doing it in the winter it's just especially when you're from Michigan uh, you don't really mind the snow you just kinda deal with it Mm -hmm. and it really doesn't change things as far as getting around obviously your commute may take a little bit longer but Other than that, I really don't mind it.
2: Ryan says he bikes during the winter for its convenience and cost efficiency.
7: It saves money on gas. Uh, It's a lot more convenient. Uh, You don't have to pay for parking. Uh, And you can get right outside your class without having to obviously park somewhere.
2: And Ryan also trains during the winter.
7: Well, aside from commuting, I train during the winter as well. It beats training on the actual trainer, which you just set your rear wheel up and you can train inside, so it's a stationary thing. And that gets extremely boring.
2: But there are limits for this cycling enthusiast.
7: I think the coldest I've ever trained in is like 9 degrees, roughly. Uh, It was pretty cold. I probably won't do that again.
2: To combat these cold temperatures, Ryan recommends layers. Many layers.
7: Multiple gloves. Um, They make a lot of great gear out there for the winter. Uh, That's the biggest thing. Uh, So you don't have to be cold when you're out there on the bike. Uh, It just depends on if you have the right stuff.
2: And Tim agrees.
6: Um, That being said, it's... It's, you know, if you've got the right equipment and the right clothing uh, or the right packaging, as a good packaging professor likes to say, it's just a matter of the correct packaging, um, you know, you can be, you can do just fine sure. riding through pretty much anything throughout the winter.
2: And when I was talking to Tim, he actually said biking is warmer than walking.
6: You actually stay a lot warmer while you're riding. You generate quite a lot of heat, and a lot of people don't realize that. And so I like to tell people like, I'd rather be... A little bit colder for a shorter amount of time like I can get across campus in like five ten minutes maximum on the snowiest days uh, whereas sitting waiting for a bus you could wait 15 minutes and you're not moving and you're not generating any heat so you're getting cold and colder and colder.
2: But what about the slippery sidewalks and the snow drifts?
6: We're right here on the river trail and we do have a number of people that have come in having just crashed you know when it when the winter first we started getting a lot of the first, some of the first snows of the season, there were quite a few people that had just come in having crashed. Tim
2: has experienced some of these dangers.
6: So I was riding home about five years ago, and this was in, right around Thanksgiving, and it was like the first freezing temperatures, and it was black ice, and I was just riding on Farm Lane, and <clears throat> just going a straight line, and up until that point, I thought I would only really crash if I was trying to turn, and my front wheel would slide out. Well, I was going in a straight line, and I just crashed right on farm lane after a cat-a-bus had just passed me.
2: Acting service manager Levi Dissinger says he deals with all the accidents and repairs winter brings. He gave me a couple recommendations for how to prepare for winter biking.
12: A lot of uh, busted wheels and frozen chains, a lot of stuff that, sticky brakes that could be prevented with a lot of just basic oil. Uh, A lot of moisture and the salt, salt's really hard on them. Uh, Even just spraying them off from time to time can help preventative maintenance.
2: Now Tim says the type of bike one uses changes what you feel while biking in the snow and the slush. Some use skinny wheeled bikes.
6: And so some conditions, you know, the skinnier wheeled bikes can, as a lot of people say, it'll it'll cut through the really deep slushy stuff and get contact with the ground that way.
2: While others prefer the fat tires.
6: Personally ride a mountain bike, an older mountain bike with fatter tires w- with the uh, metal studs I have on the tires so that it it can uh, for me, I just prefer to ride a fatter tired bike and uh, but so there's two different thoughts on that so
2: either way, Tim says fenders are the most important
6: um, fenders, I think are really kind of a must for winter riding just to keep all the junk off you like as it warms up now I mean we 're getting into really sloppy conditions mm-hmm. and so keeping all the the mud and the spray and the salt off not only you but also off the bike it helps keep the bike a little mm-hmm. cleaner as well.
2: Whether you are a first time cyclist or a seasoned veteran Tim says biking in the winter just requires some courage and resilience.
6: You have to have a certain amount of grit or interest in just doing something new maybe
2: but if you aren't ready for winter biking quite yet, you can always attempt indoor bike polo. MSU Bike Center puts it on on Fridays at IM West. Now for more information about the Bike Center, its winter specials, or cycling in general, you can check out bikes.msu.edu. For Impact News, I am Abby Newton.
9: Now back to
0: Impact Exposure.
2: I'm Abby Newton, and you are listening to Exposure on IMPACT 89FM. An MSU professor found that smartphone usage at night can actually decrease energy levels the next day. Russell Johnson is a professor in the Department of Management, and he conducted this research. We had him in the studio to chat about his findings.
13: My colleagues and I, we've come across a lot of anecdotal evidence about people complaining about using their smartphones at night, how that uh, causes them to be more fatigued and mm-hmm. eats into uh, uh, kind of their sleep time. Um, but no one had really studied this uh, scientifically, so we kind of took that upon ourselves to see whether this was in fact the, the case. So what we did was, um, in, across two studies, uh, in the first one we tracked managers over 10 consecutive work days and surveyed them multiple times a day where we uh, captured how long they use their smartphone for work at night after 9 p.m. Um, and 9 p.m. was chosen because most people go to sleep within one to two hours of mm-hmm. 11 p.m. so that was kind of the kind of the beginning of that, that period of time. Um, we also tracked uh, how long they slept and then their mental fatigue uh, the next morning and how engaged they were at work uh, at the end of the work day. Um, what we found was uh, smartphones uh, ate into people's sleep time, and uh, use, the use of smartphones for work at night caused them to be more uh, fatigued the next morning. And mm-hmm. kind of ironically, even though they're using it for work that night, which you think would kind of prepare them for, uh, for whatever they're, they're going to face the next day, it actually left them uh, uh, less engaged at work the following day.
2: And is it more how your mind engages with your phone, and then you know maybe you're distracted in that way, or is it the physical time you're spending on your phone before you go to sleep?
13: So we suspect there's two kind of mechanisms that uh, account for the these detrimental effects of smartphone use for work at night. Uh, one is of more of a physiological effect. There's a lot of studies that show that being exposed to to light, especially around bedtime, um, impedes sleep because it actually interferes with the production of melatonin, which is a, a sleep promoting hormone. Um, And when that happens, it's harder to fall asleep and and stay asleep. Um, There's also a psychological uh, mechanism as well. um, It's been found that it's actually pretty important to be able to disengage or get a respite from work uh, in the evenings. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, that's kind of counterintuitive. You think people that are constantly on thinking about work, that would prepare them. But um, it's, in fact, really important for recovery purposes to get that mental break. And if people are using their smartphone at night, obviously that's not happening.
2: In what age level were you testing?
13: Um, so in the first study, it was kind of mid to level, uh, mid to high level managers. So, so was, these folks, 40, 50, okay. um, many of them are CEOs or mm-hmm. COOs. Um, in the second study, we looked at uh, non-managerial employees, so more in in the 30s, 40s, mm-hmm. okay. uh, but this wasn't a, a college-age population.
2: And it just makes me curious about, you know, the future to come with this smartphone use when you have a generation born into smartphone use and how that will impact them. So that's very interesting, excuse me, to do the study now and then see kind of how it progresses.
13: Compare it to, yeah, a right. generation that's more more into it. Mm-hmm. Um what what I would suspect for that is obviously the physiological effects. It doesn't matter if you're old, young, or or when you were born. Mm-hmm. That the the blue light from the smartphone is going to have that negative effect on um, on hormones. Uh, uh, production for sleep. Um, in terms of uh, age, though, I, th- I think one thing we didn't do—we looked specifically at use of smartphone for work, uh, mm. whereas using it for social activity. So if I if I was facebooking or gaming on it, that actually allows me to get that that respite or break from work. Oh. So that that may even offset the the negative physiological effects. That's actually something that we're going to follow up on in a, 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 a next study.
2: That's very interesting. And uh, were you surprised by any of the results?
13: Um, I. Th- Probably the most surprising was um, in our second study, we looked at smartphone use uh, with non-managerial employees, but we also looked at the use of televisions, tablets, and uh, laptops, computers. Um, to see, is are smartphones unique? Do they have kind of a, a effect above and beyond these other things, or are they just another example of uh, technology? And actually what we found, although all of those things, uh, televisions, laptops, tablets, and smartphones aid into sleep time, um, it was really smartphones that had the strongest effect on mental fatigue the next morning, and they had the only effect on disengagement the following day. That's interesting. So, um, which is something that uh, w- w- was surprising for mm-hmm. us.
2: And how did you measure, excuse me, how did you measure disengagement?
13: Oh, um, uh, a a typical self-report survey. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, um, the the surveys went out about, I believe it was 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. And and just asked how how, how, uh, how were you able to concentrate at work, how engaged were you at work, Um, things of that nature.
2: And I was reading, and I found that 40% of people get en- do get enough sleep. So you've got 60% of people who aren't getting enough sleep. Do you think a lot of that is contributed to that smartphone use?
13: So based on some of the sleep polls that mm-hmm. we encountered, and, and this is one reason why we conducted this study, um, a, a, a majority of people say they, they don't get enough sleep. And actually quite a few of those folks that report not getting sleep, uh, specifically indicated uh, the smartphone is the culprit.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add? I think I kind of got all I was thinking, but if there's anything else, go ahead. Um, uh,
13: uh, maybe one other surprising finding. Sure. Um, we looked at kind of the average use that people are using these mm. different technologies at night. Um and so I mentioned smartphones had the biggest effect on people's fatigue and uh, depletion uh, engagement the next day at work, um, despite the fact that they seem to use them the, the least on average. Smartphones were used between maybe 5 and 10 minutes. Mm. Um, of course, there's variance, so some excessive phone use would be uh, in the 20-minute range, uh, whereas television use was upwards of 40, 45 minutes, and, and even computers were in the 20-minute range. So even though it seems that they're being used more, it's smartphones that are having the bigger impact.
2: In five minutes, that seems so little, you know, and meaningless. Wow, uh, for you, do you find yourself, you know, checking your phone right before you go to bed, or now are you self-conscious?
13: <laughs> so, so I am guilty of that, and I, I used to sleep with it on on the bed side, but mm-hmm. um, I'm trying to take some of my advice. Um, in that, uh, a, a lot of people use their phone uh, for like a sleep alarm, and I'm mm-hmm. I'm guilty of that too. But what I do is I plug my phone in away from the bed, where it's out of uh, where it's out of reach, and so it's not going to be that that distraction there. Mm-hmm. And flip it over so that screen isn't uh, <laughs> isn't bothering me.
2: It's very difficult to take your own advice, isn't it? (laughs) Well, thank you very much, uh, Professor Johnson. We really appreciate your time.
13: Yeah, thank you.
10: (laughs) There's traffic in the sky, and it doesn't seem to be getting much better. There's kids playing games on the pavement, drawing waves on the pavement, mm -hmm. shadows of the planes on the pavement. It's enough to make me cry, but that don't seem like it, it will make it feel better. Maybe it's a dream, and if I scream, it will burst at the seams. Whole place would fall into pieces, and then they'd say, Well, how could we have known? I'll tell them it's not so hard to tell. Nah, nah, nah. You keep adding stones, soon the water will be lost in the well, and puzzle pieces in the ground, no one ever seems to be digging, instead they're looking up towards the heavens with their eyes on the heavens, Mm. the shadows on the way to the heavens, Mm. it's enough to make me cry, that don't seem like it will make feel better, the answers could be found, we could learn from digging down, but no one ever seems to be digging, instead they'll say, well how could we have known, I'll tell them it's not so hard to tell, no, no, you keep out a stone, soon the water will be lost in the well. of wisdom all around But no one ever seems to listen They're talking about the plans on the paper building up from the pavement mm-hmm. The shadows from the scrapers on the pavement mm-hmm. It's enough to make me sigh But that don't seem like it will make you feel better The words are all around But the words are only sounds And no one ever seems to listen Instead they'll sing Well, how could we have known? I'll tell them it's really not so hard to tell. No, no, no. You keep at a stone, soon the water will be lost in the well, lost in the well.
2: Welcome back. You are listening to Exposure on Impact 89 FM, and I am Abby Newton. The Eli and Edith Broad Art Museum has become a sort of household name in the past year. Our reporter Stephen Leslie Rich found out how the museum has integrated into this community.
5: In 2010 students across campus were confused and intrigued by the new building being constructed on the north end of Michigan State University. Terms such as spaceship and building of steel were thrown around to describe the strange building that would become the Eli and Edith Broad Art Museum.
12: At first Uh, I was a freshman when I was going up, so like visiting campus, I didn't really like it. I thought it was kind of an eyesore, and then even when it was still being built, I didn't like it. I thought it looked like a spaceship. I
7: mean, I know that's what its nickname is, but honestly.
5: It has been just over one year since the museum opened to the public, but the Broad has become a part of the MSU and East Lansing community. Lena Lightman, the Broad's Education Department Manager, explains that the Broad has grown to be an icon on the campus.
3: It is amazing because I think people probably didn't know what to expect when we first opened. It's kind of, what is this entity, and we've been watching this building come up, and is it going to be, you know something that we're going to be interested in, is it going to be part of our campus community.
5: Lena says that the Broad has not only been able to reach out to the community, but also to 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 MSU students.
2: Um, I absolutely love seeing students in the building all the time. You know, having so many student employees
3: makes us, I think, part of the fabric of the campus. Um, and then we've just got, we, we are constantly looking for ways to get students involved in what we're doing.
5: The Broad has programs supporting MSU student art, educational events, and even MSU student film premieres. Tammy Fortin, the Broad's manager of public programs, says that the Broad has given student artists a new place for art, creativity, and conversation.
12: I'm hoping that they, they feel that the, in some capacity that, the, that the, this museum is their space. I'm hoping that we get students in there to t- have meetings and hang out with each other, have coffee, talk about the artwork that's in there.
5: Beyond the artistic value the museum has brought to campus, the museum has provided job opportunities for students. Joe Brack is just one of these student employees.
13: I'm an art major, and the experience of working like directly with these artists who come in, it changes your whole perspective on uh, On what they're trying to say.
5: The future remains bright for the Broad as more and more events and artists are showcased through the museum. And as Fortin explains, the mission continues.
12: We make, we come up with these programs as a way to contextualize the artwork that's in the building so that you can relate to it. So by all means, if you if you come into a, to the museum and you, have, and you see a painting on the wall and you're like, why is that art? What is up with this?
5: Tammy okay, says the Broad out. aims to challenge and you know, broaden your we're perspectives.
12: We're going to some backstory on it. We're going we're gonna to open your eyes maybe to something that you that you thought wasn't art. Maybe you'll walk away thinking, that is art and that's amazing.
5: In this said spaceship that we call the Broad Art Museum has only just taken off. For Impact News, I'm Stephen Rich.
2: You are on campus during the hours of 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. Monday through Friday. You may have seen it. The isolation. Students walking to class with their eyes forward and their headphones in. Music playing. Our reporter Spencer Ray was curious about the effects of this headphone isolation.
1: Walking around town with your headphones playing is more damaging than you think. Lansing audiologist Sarah Holcomb clears the air about headphone safety.
8: The biggest danger I think about is I'm trying to protect hearing. So the things that, if you're wearing the earphones, if you're turning them up really loud, then you're drowning out some other sound. So you might not hear some of the things coming up behind you. We use sound to kind of give us that our sense of what's happening around. So if we're putting in earphones in, we're going to lose some of that ability.
0: Lansing
1: native Alan Good doesn't believe headphones impact his daily safety.
6: No, I never really feel like my music gets in the way of what I'm doing or what I'm supposed to be paying attention to. I mean, if if I need to cross the street, I'm going to be an adult and look both ways and cross the street. I don't think my music or its volume has
12: anything to do with that. The Regional Director of Lansing Audiologist, Julie Pabst, has safety
1: tips for everyone that uses headphones.
9: If you can carry on a conversation at the same time, then it's usually under the level that would cause damage. Or I always said to my kids, if they were standing next to me, if I can hear your music, then it's too loud, okay? But there isn't any particular regulations that state one way or the other because they're all different.
1: Pabst also stated that it's tough to regulate at exactly what volume is best because of the many different brands of music devices and the designs of the headphones.
5: You're listening to...
0: Impact Exposure.
2: Welcome back. I am Abby Newton. Now, March 31st is the deadline to enroll for health insurance under the Affordable Care Act. Get Covered America is a nonprofit, nonpartisan campaign of Enroll America focused on informing the public about health insurance options. I spoke with Sean Danick of Get Covered America and MSU graduate Elizabeth Batiste about health insurance and the deadline.
9: Enroll America is uh, a nonpartisan, nonprofit 501c3 group, and we uh, are dedicated to maximizing uh, enrollment through the new health care marketplace. And so on October 1st, the uh, marketplace went into effect, and individuals now and families, consumers have the opportunity to shop in side-by-side comparisons for a health care insurance plan that fits their needs and their budget. And so we launched the Get Covered America campaign to go out into communities and, and educate consumers about these new health care options.
2: And you visited us a couple months ago, and you kind of told us a bit about that, but why is it important now, and what do we have coming up in about six weeks?
9: Sure. Well, coming up in about six weeks, we have the end of the open enrollment period, and that is March 31st. And so Get Covered America, we are out in communities from Grand Rapids to here in East Lansing, Lansing, to Flint, to Detroit. Uh, you know, having conversations with individuals where they're at, either at their doorstep or over the phone or at churches, at barbershops, wherever they are, so that we can let them know about these new health care options and direct them to in person assisters who can help them uh, enroll.
2: Mm-hmm. And you kind of talked a little bit about why you're passionate, but can you share again what makes you so passionate about this issue?
9: Sure. Well, I've always been passionate about, you know, uh, healthcare care reform so that everybody has. The opportunity to have quality, affordable health care coverage, and now that's a reality. Mm-hmm. And so I joined forces with uh, Get Covered America because, you know, the fact of the matter is, is I was very lucky my whole life to uh, have health care insurance until I turned 26 years old back in uh, July of 2012. And unfortunately, when I uh, lost my well, I didn't lose my job, but I was uh, on an issue advocacy campaign, and so. Um, I lost my health care insurance when that campaign ended, and I have type 1 diabetes. And so under the old uh, marketplace, under the old individual uh, system, I had no options. I was denied because I had a preexisting condition, and, mm-hmm. and for those plans that offered uh, insurance, it was sky high. Mm-hmm. $1,500, $2,000 per month for really baseline coverage that came nowhere near uh, the coverage that I needed.
2: Mm-hmm. So. And in, in similar uh, or in parallel with that story, we have Elizabeth here who's had difficult issues dealing with health care as well. A graduate from MS, MSU in 2012. Elizabeth, welcome to the studio.
4: Thanks for having me. Would you
2: like to share your story about health care?
4: Um, sure, yeah. Well, um, I grew up um, without health and ins- Well, I, I wasn't on my parents' health insurance mm-hmm. when it, growing up. Um, I was actually under um, the government health care program for children. So um, when I came to college, and after I turned 18, I, I didn't have any health insurance, and um, unfortunately, I hate to admit that for a couple of years, I just kind of winged it, um, I Clash which I do, not, and- <laughs> I do not um, recommend at all to any college kids no. that are listening out there, or young adults. Um, it wasn't smart, and um, especially driving my moped around MSU's campus oh, is oh, triply not as smart, um, but I did have, fortunately, um, like the Planned Parenthood Plan First plan, so I could have that type of thing covered once mm-hmm. a year. And then eventually I did um, take advantage of MSU's plan. Um, so after graduation, that's not available to non-students. Um, so I, I did have a full-time job, and I, I just switched to um, a job with a uh, digital consulting firm here in Lansing, and um, that is when I actually started um, shopping for my own health insurance on the marketplace. and. Um, compared to what my previous employer was paying per month, it's just like way, way less. Mm-hmm. It, um, I'm, I'm only paying about $270 a month um, for my insurance and it covers everything that um, my shiny all benefits um, em- employer paid plan had paid for me previously. Mm-hmm. So um, there were a couple of parts of the plans that were extremely important to me. Um, So that was all laid out very easily for me to to pick and choose so I can make sure that the things that are most important to me were included in my plan.
2: Mm -hmm. And guide us through that experience when you're logging in online and all of a sudden you've got this marketplace. What was that like? What did you see
9: and experience?
4: Yeah, well, um, I was um, applying before the first
9: deadline, which was that was the, december 23rd was yes. the first enrollment yeah. deadline for so
4: um i mean i'm not gonna lie it did take a little while for me to be able to to log in and get on um but i did find that like getting on later at night was perfectly fine nothing was slow um and everything went through just fine um filling it out was super easy so you just create a login you just put in all of your information and then it'll pop up plans for you so um when you kind of figure out um what your financial situation is, you can you can start by narrowing it down to the different um, levels of plans, and then that's when you can really get down to the nitty-gritty of what components of the plans that you want. Sure. But um, it's it's all laid out very very easily.
9: And that's a, that's what it, that's what's exciting about the new marketplaces. It's mm-hmm. a one-stop shop where the old system you had to go to each individual plan, and there was fine print, and it was all the there were all these complexities that made it just very difficult to choose a plan that was actually right for you and that actually fits your budget
8: mm-hmm. and, oh, go
4: ahead. to bring it back to msu students i think that in a lot of regards finding um health insurance on the marketplace was easier than trying to use the the class um scheduling technology <laughs> here so that's that's not very hard so it's, it's about the same that's so that's very relatable very
2: yeah and both very big decisions <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah. uh, and looking in the future sean what do you hope to see in the next five ten years in terms of not only the marketplace but healthcare in america in general
9: well, you know, right now is, you know, a perfect opportunity for the first time in history, in Michigan's history at least, that everybody has the opportunity to get covered f- at an affordable rate and with all the essential benefits that are mandated by law to be covered. And those uh, include routine doctor's visits, maternity care, preventive care, uh, prescription coverage, and uh, and more. and that is going to continue on for for uh, you know into uh, for the next five to ten years and so that's exciting and this is the first enrollment period next fall we have another enrollment period but it's important to note that for the graduating seniors right now they may be covered under their uh, parents plan or they may be covered by the student health plan but once they graduate if they aren't lucky to, enough to have you know, parents that, that have health care insurance, the deadline to, to enroll is March 31st, and so we mm-hmm. encourage them to go to healthcare.gov and find a plan before they graduate so that they can start out their career with that peace of mind and that financial security that will allow them to be productive and successful.
2: And how has Michigan been doing overall in the enrollment period thus far?
9: Oh, it's it's going really wonderful. So, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services projected that by the end of January, Michigan would have one hundred thousand new enrollees through the marketplace, and we beat that projection. Now there is one hundred and twelve thousand. Uh, michiganders who have quality affordable health care coverage because of the marketplace and it's important to note too especially for your listeners who are primarily young adults students and young professionals that eighty six percent of those one hundred twelve thousand qualified for financial assistance that brought down their monthly premium and it's important to note too or worth noting that um... that over uh... that most Uh, young adults are going to be able to find a health care insurance plan for under $50 per month. I would encourage everybody to go to getcoveredamerica.org if they're interested in in getting involved in this this important effort to raise awareness uh, about the new health care insurance options or, you know, go to healthcare.gov and take a look at the new options for yourself. Also we have a a calculator that allow uh, your listeners to estimate their cost and so they can go to getcoveredamerica.org forward slash calculator and they can just plug in their age, their income, what their projected income is, and uh, and see you know how much they're they're likely to to, to pay. So
2: well, excellent, Sean and Elizabeth, thank you very much. Thank
9: you so much. Thank Abby. you.
2: Welcome back to Exposure on IMPACT 89FM, I'm Abby Newton. Now a foreclosed house in Lansing became a neighborhood treasure when Marcus Brown turned it into Village Summit. IMPACT's Gabrielle Saldivia has this story.
8: Nestled in the Lansing neighborhood fabulous acres, sits a two-story colonial looking home. From the outside, it appears run down. Not the prettiest house on the block. A sign on the front porch reads, Village Summit. Marcus Brown opens the door.
10: We wanted to create something that would be in direct opposition to the crack house, the weed house. We wanted to create a positive side of that coin.
8: Village Summit is a community resource. It's a place kids go after school. They read books, get on the internet, and even eat a snack. This all sounds great, except one thing. Village Summit is located in a food desert which means fresh and affordable food is not easily accessible. There are only convenience stores nearby and nowhere that sells fruits and veggies. Brown recognizes this problem and is working on ways to change it.
10: So we started uh, doing a little community garden first in the backyard and then it expanded to taking the empty lot up.
8: That's where John Crone from the Ingham County Land Bakes Garden Program comes in. He's working with Brown to locate vacant lots and fabulous acres and build community gardens on them.
10: We are just sort of helping them help stabilize
13: and beautify their own neighborhood and provide food for their uh, residents by uh, basically
1: leasing this land to them for almost nothing.
8: The gardens will grow a variety of crops, and the products will be available free to anyone in the community, as long as they lend in a helping hand. Right now, the plants are covered by inches of snow, but come spring, fabulous acres will be blooming, maybe even with a sense of community. Again, that
2: was Gabrielle Saldivia reporting from Lansing about Village Summit.
5: You're listening to
0: Impact Exposure.
6: I just received word of an invasion! Speak quickly, maggot! Is it those Canadians again? I don't know, sir! We just heard that Monday, at
1: 8 p.m., The Impact will be invaded! You stupid ninny! That's the Asian invasion! It's the poppiest, catchiest, and all-around toe tapping is music out of the Korea, Japan, and China! But, sir, I'm no good with Asian dialects. Shut up and listen to the music, Private! That catchy beat knows no language
5: barrier! Now move out, everyone! Sir, yes, sir! The
0: Asian Invasion.
5: Monday nights from 8 till 10 on 89 FM. The Impact.
0: For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night
9: of the week.
6: Thursday nights from 10 until 2 a.m. Listen to the Hours of Power, the scariest
9: and only metal show in the mid-Michigan area.
0: Only on
6: the
9: Now back to
0: Impact Exposure.
2: Again, welcome back to Exposure on Impact 89FM. I am Abby Newton. Now, the first comic book appeared in 1933, and they've continued to gain popularity. But comic books aren't as simple as they seem. Our reporter, Quinn Hoffman, found out that they are actually in art form.
1: The Walking Dead, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, V for Vendetta, Kick-Ass. What do all these movies and TV shows have in common? They all started as graphic novels. That's right, comic books. Centuries old and more commonly known as comics, graphic novels are defined a novel made up of a sequence of drawings in boxes that tell a story. Many people associate comic books with kids, but that's not where we find them today.
12: The caliber of art... And writing in these books, a lot of these books, has grown to be very powerful.
1: That's Gabe Cooper, the owner of the new comic book store in East Lansing, The Hollow Mountain.
12: With writers like Alan Moore and Brian K. Vaughn and Frank Miller, you know, leading this kind of, I guess, modern revolution in literature, just because they have illustrations doesn't make the words within them less powerful or meaningful. If we didn't have this big, you know, pulse in popular culture that's pushed, you know, the word comic book, the word graphic novel into the forefront of entertainment, we wouldn't see a lot of these opportunities arising for, you know, uh, self-published comics and independent artists and writers. Uh, It's not just Marvel and DC anymore.
1: And this recent surge of comic book love isn't just for fun. I found that scholars like Professor Megan Inbody are starting to look to them for educational purposes. Would you be surprised at all if a student had uh, come up to you and told you that they had been assigned a comic book or a graphic novel to read for an English class?
2: Mm, Would I be surprised? Um, I don't think so. There's a lot of talk about, you know, including more forms of visual culture as worthy of literary study. I think more and more English departments are taking
4: the kind of ways that we study old traditional texts and are applying them to newer media like film and you know, various digital texts. So trying to stay up with the times and stay relevant.
1: She says that the English major is going through a period of transition, and where it's going just may start to include a lot more comics. Ian Baker, an MSU sophomore who studies advertising, was assigned a graphic novel, Persepolis, for his humanities course last semester.
6: I thought it was really cool because you know, it's not just a, it's not just reading, it's a combination of art as well.
1: After talking with the experts for a couple weeks, I found out that our very own Michigan State has the largest comic book collection in the world that's open to the public. So I decided to meet with the owner, Randy Scott, to tour this prestigious collection.
12: The new, the new 52 is ending up here.
1: He told me that comics were given a bad reputation through the funny pages in the 1920s, but he believes that, although there are still some stupid comics coming out, they are gradually being taken more seriously.
12: So a lot of people, especially people older than me, grew up. Uh, in the time when those things were, comics were being denounced by senators on the air and all that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's been a long struggle, and now there are a younger generation of professors who don't have that stigma automatically built into them.
1: The 1950s is widely referred to as the golden age concerning comics, and it was, for the kids. But the love for the medium in adult audiences seems to be growing every day. And this rapid growth is causing some people to start to ask, Is the age of the graphic novel closer than we think? For Impact News, I'm Quinn Hoffman.
5: You're listening to
0: Impact Exposure on
1: 89FM.
2: And that is all for Exposure on IMPACT 89FM. Thank you for joining us. I wish all MSU students, faculty, and staff a happy and safe spring break. Perhaps we'll bring a little warmth back to East Lansing. Special thanks to our producer, Gabrielle Saldivia, our station manager, Sam Riddle, and our general manager, Ed Glazer. You can find all of these stories and interviews on our website at IMPACT89FM.org. Have a lovely evening. And keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next time. I'm Abby Newton, and this is IMPACT.
0: 89FM.